Welcome to another episode of The Raven Narratives. I'm Sarah Severson. And I'm Tom Yoder. We are the co-producers of The Raven Narratives. The stories you're about to hear were told in December of 2019 at our SLAM storytelling events at the Durango Arts Center and the Sunflower Theater when the theme was home. Our SLAM events feature willing storytellers from the audience who put their name in our Cracker Jack box. And when we draw their name, they take the stage and tell a six to eight minute story related to the theme for that evening. If you told a story at our home slams last December and you do not hear your story in this episode, please know that we choose a selection of stories for our podcast and not all stories can be included. We also had some technical difficulty recording the second half of our slam at the Sunflower Theater, which unfortunately made those stories unavailable for this episode. The story you're about to hear was told by Bailey Carlson at the Durango Arts Center. Here's Bailey's story. I am 5'8", about 160 pounds, athletic build, and I suck at sports. (laughs) I've always been terrible at sports. People always assume that I was fantastic at basketball, um, softball, soccer. Little did they know I was the little kid that was diagnosed with severe anxiety at five years old, and I was the kid that at the soccer game was hiding under some random person's truck because the wind was blowing too hard. And for some weird reason, I was scared of the wind and flushing public toilets and vomit. I couldn't even say the word vomit. I had to call it TU, which stood for throw up. (laughs) I've come a long way. Little did people know, when I tried softball, none of the people on the team liked me because I was so horrible at it. I was the one that just stood there going, please don't make me pitch, please don't make me pitch, please don't make me pitch. And all of the other people on the team were going, please don't let Bailey pitch, please don't let Bailey pitch. (laughs) My dad didn't understand why I couldn't hit a ball My dad didn't understand why my brothers and I sucked at sports. I was the kid that did eighth grade basketball and I was the star player of the C team, not because I was any good, but because I was the only one that cared. I was the only one that actually wanted to run and not just like do my nails. So when people ask me what I did and where my little niche was, They don't really realize until they truly get to know me that it was in the theater. When my brothers and I were were young kids, my mom signed us up for our first show. My oldest brother, Brian, and I absolutely loved it. My brother, Ben, said he was never going to do it again. Little did he know he'd be living in New York in his 20s with his wife trying to make it on Broadway. When... We were about eight, when I was about eight or nine, we saw the newspaper had auditions for the music man at a little place in Grand Junction called the Cabaret, which was a dinner theater. And the auditions were that day. My mom, my mom said, oh, you know, this would be cool to do something next time. And my brothers and I went, no, we're going to do it today. We're going to audition. We walked in that little theater and they gave us a little snippet to sing about the Wells Fargo wagon. It's a coming down the street. Oh, please let it be for me. I'm not singing the rest. (laughs) I'm not even singing. I'm not not singing for you. Um, We got the part. All of us got a part in ensemble, and that's where things really began. That's where my theater career began. Now, people that know me really well understand why I was bad at sports, but also understand why I was so good at theater. Because I suck at sports, but I am so wonderful at being overdramatic. 
I, don't, I can't see my girlfriend in the audience right now, but I can imagine she's doing this. So started my theater career as a little eight-year-old, getting 150 bucks each run of a show, which is about three to four months. Beauty and the Beast, I was a dancing lipstick tube. <laughs> the prime of my career. And Susical the Musical, I got to wear a leotard from when they did Cats earlier that year. <laughs> I was Nellie Oakley and Annie Get Your Gun. My brothers always played twins in shows because they looked so much alike. I refused to be a part of High School Musical in any way, shape, or form on the stage, and so I became a stage manager. When I was 16, I got my first illegal job which was running lights for the theater. They paid me $25 a show. I ran lights. I stayed up way too late. And we just prayed that the Department of Labor would not notice <laughs> that they were keeping a 16-year-old up until 11.30 midnight running lights. Or that the little seventh grader failed their math class because the run of Beauty and the Beast went too long and they would stay up until one in the morning during rehearsals. The cabaret was my home and the cabaret is where I learned the F-bomb for the first time. The cabaret is where I saw two men kiss for the first time and went, they're both named Jeremy. You guys were not expecting that. <laughs> the cabaret is where I did my homework. The cabaret is where I ran into my best friends. The cabaret is where my mom would bake cookies, and they knew my mom as, ooh, Beth the cookie lady. And I would always ask, ooh, when is your mom coming? She has the cookies, right? The cabaret is when I dated my, my first boyfriend, before I realized I was not interested in men. Good old James. <laughs> the cabaret is honestly where I learned all of my life lessons. The cabaret is where I was raised by a menagerie of gay fathers since mine wasn't around much. It's why I'm so fabulous. <laughs> when the cabaret closed down, it was one of the worst days of my life. I was in New York visiting friends. We missed the cast party or the, 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 the party closing down, but it turns out you do not give a director the budget because he overspends every time you get someone that actually knows money. And the best part is, that was years and years ago, and I am still so connected to my cabaret friends. When I was 21, I met up with some of my friends at the, at the, at the cabaret that were bartending and really loved that my friend who we dubbed Big T almost refused to serve me a drink because he couldn't quite believe I was 21. I still see my big brother, Seffers, when I go to Grand Junction, give him a big squeeze. My friend Courtney has been through many marriages and divorces, has three beautiful children. We're all still worried about James. <laughs> the cabaret is where my brother found his passion as he tries to make it in New York. The cabaret is where my life really started. The cabaret is where my life really continues. As I get to live and laugh and grow with all of those people that have seen me grow up since I was a little kid. The cabaret is where 
we all got together after my brother got married and reminisced on good times and remembered just what home really is like. Thank you. Thanks, Bailey, for telling that story. Our next storyteller was Faith Coyote, who told her story about home at the Sunflower Theater in Cortez. Here's Faith's story. Um, well, I was born and raised in the area, um, but this place was never really home for me. Home was, uh, it was a big white van that took us all across the country. Um, my parents were artists, so like from when I was like two weeks old up until, I don't know, maybe I was like 19, we just traveled in this van all the time. And I don't know why, why, but for some reason it never died. <laughs> it kept going, and despite it being a Ford, it made it to 1.5 million miles. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I kind of grew up in that thing. Um, there's so many stories of some of the craziest things that happened, like, uh, home left me in the middle of Kansas at three o'clock in the morning at a gas station because home didn't realize I was in the gas station and thought I was still sleeping in the back seat. <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, you think about it like, home, like what I was always taught, home wasn't just like a structure, home was also like it's a people. Um, so it didn't matter where we went or who we were with. Um, it, I mean, I don't know why. It's home. Like, everywhere is just home. Like, even, like, sitting here, like, people I know that are in this room, like, it's comfortable enough to say, like, this is home as well, too. Um, I don't think home is, like, a place or people. I think it's more of a feeling. So, yeah. Thank you, Faith, for sharing that story with us. Our next storyteller is Tyler Van Gemmert, who told his story about home at the Durango Arts Center. Here is Tyler's story. Hi, everybody. Hi. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, Let's see, I, I wish someone happy birthday the other day and they reminded me that it's really about the moms, right? <laughs> like a person being born is like the mother is such a big part of that. <laughs> and um, and I, I guess my story is an appreciation about my mom and um, throughout my life she, she would always tell me, you know, you and I, we shared the same heartbeat. Like, we shared the same heartbeat. We're always connected. And um, I, I guess I'd like to share with you about my mother because I, I feel such a sense of home in remembering her and, and um, connecting with her. And my mom's a really unique individual, as I'm sure all of your moms are <laughs> as well. But when she was in her 20s, she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, which is a, it's a cancer. It's a lymphoma-type cancer, and she had a little lump in her neck. And I was like three years old, and my little brother hadn't been born yet. Um, and so the treatment protocol at, at that time in the 70s was to have radiation treatment, right? Um, and so you can imagine that was pretty intense for her. She would have to go to the hospital, and, and um, she had these little tiny tattoo marks in different places where they would line up the, the lasers <laughs> every time she would get her treatment. And I was just this little guy that was holding her hand, and we 
we'd go and together and um, I think probably the nurses just watched out for me because my dad was he was often working and and um, so I'd like to fast forward now uh, she was in remission uh, like 20 21 22 years and so I'm in high school and and she just celebrated and felt so great and I guess I should let you know that my parents did split up when I was 10 so really literally my home was with my mother I was raised by a single mom and um, we lived in Albuquerque New Mexico and she was just so thrilled to raise two boys and, and felt really lucky that she could actually have another child after her radiation. So my, that was my little brother. And um, I was really close with my mother. Um, she had a difficult time uh, separating with my father, and it was a lot harder on her than I... I mean, at least she expressed how difficult that was. And, and I, was, I was close with her, and I got to hear about all of her, her difficulties. And um, I think I just grew up wanting to be like a really great guy. <laughs> and, and I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I, uh, you know, I dated some people and it didn't work out. And, and oftentimes, you know, I, it was a huge learning experience for me. And, um, you know, I went to acupuncture school. Some of you know that I, I'm an acupuncturist in the community. And, and so I lived in Los Angeles, and, and she had moved to be close with my grandfather in, in Arizona and in Phoenix. So we were, we were kind of regionally close together. And um, she had to go to the hospital, and she, she called me. And um, I drove out there and I, just to find out what was going on. And, and her health um, in her 60s was, was kind of fragile. And so I, I recommended alternative natural medicine. I mean, she, was, she had a heart condition at that point and had some leg edema. And I was like, oh, Phoenix has this great alternative healing community. And let's find the best naturopathic cardiologist for you. And she was into it. She was way into it. And I felt really great and proud of my mom that she went and visited this cardiologist. And he learned that she had radiation in her 20s. So he recommended, hey, let's do a, a what do you call that, a, like a cancer profile or you know, a screening just to make sure that you're still clear. Well, um, it turned up positive again, um, and that was like a really powerful time um, because she was so enthusiastic about this naturopathic path of healing but she basically quickly got swept right back into the, the traditional, more conventional medical model. Um, and it just kind of went downhill. So um, I kind of wish I was telling you guys a comedy story in this moment here right now. But, but I'm just sharing this, this closeness um, because it, the cancer, it, got, it, it started in her lung in the lower left lobe, and then it metastasized to her hip bone, and it was in the marrow. And, and it was like happening so fast. Like I had just barely gotten out of acupuncture school, and to see my mom's health rapidly decline, was, it was shocking for me. And she had become a born-again uh, Christian, and she had this faith, and it was such faith. It was beautiful. And I, we used to question each other's spirituality all the time. And, you know, I guess what I'm leading up to here is, um, is this, this moment of being in Mancus, and I was with some friends, and my phone rang, and, and it was my mom. And I'm like, hey, mom, how are you doing? And she's like, I'm not doing good. Like, if you want to see me, you better get out here. And I just had no money. I, my friend loaned me. $500 so I could get on an airplane and I flew to um, I was just starting a business in town and I just had to like drop that and fly down to visit my mom and she was just skin and bones like so frail I, I did barely recognized her but just that love of a mother and her son it was I just I stepped right in and I was I was doing everything I could to help her out I mean you know instead of those insure medical shakes that she was having to drink I like went and made her these 
probiotic smoothies with fresh fruit and all this, and she was really thrilled. And we, we had this talk. I was sitting with her on the couch, and she was describing to me now, because the cancer had metastasized to her brain, that she was having radiation treatment to her brain. And I was like, wow, what's that like, you know? And she just very step-by-step step told me, she's like, yeah, you know, the first couple times I went in, I went fine. I, I walked out. It was, it was okay. And, and then on the seventh time, this is a 10-course uh, treatment session. She's like, you know, on the seventh visit, I, I went in for the treatment, and I walked out just like, like all the other six ones before that. And... I was walking through the cafeteria, and, and this, is what she, this is what she did with her hand. She, she just went like this and said, and she swept her hand right out in front of me. I mean, I knew exactly what she meant, and I don't even know if there's a word for that. But I've, I had this feeling like I knew that was it for her, like this was it, and I was holding her hand, and she was reaching out to her savior on the other side. And I just feel so fortunate to be able to have that experience with her. And what was the most profound life change for me after she passed away and, um, and being such a good guy for her. And I, I guess I found a, a spirituality that includes this divine mother that is everywhere, that's like holding everything. And even when I wept over and mourned her, her death, I, I guess in that bottomlessness, I felt the, the rock of, um, you know, what's giving birth to all of life. And, and so that was just, that was the special thing that I really wanted to share with you guys tonight. So thank you very much. Thanks, Tyler, for telling that story. Our next storyteller was Jessica Randall, who told her story about home at the Sunflower Theater in Cortez. Here's Jessica's story. Trekking in the mountains in the North Cascades of Washington I was totally exhausted. I was exhausted by the 2,500 miles that I had hiked and the 40 pounds on my back and the five months of trail that was behind me since I had left the Mexico-US border in April. I was exhausted anticipating the end of my journey when I would reach Canada and how emotional that was gonna be. I was exhausted because my body was so thin and weary and tired and worn out. I'd been mistaken for homeless multiple times while I was on the trail, many times by people in town when I was hitchhiking, when I was getting more food and doing what I needed in town. And I often envied them going home to their hot showers and their comfy beds. But I felt like I knew in my bones that I was doing something that was going to change myself in a way that made it worth it to miss out on all those things for that time period. Growing up in North Carolina, 1220 Selwyn Lane, that was my home. I thought it was really special. My parents had picked the lot and they picked the design for the house and they chose to raise their family there. There were so many memories. Every ding on the wall and every detail around the house was because of us. I loved that house so much. I remember when my mom went to grad school at Chapel Hill and she wanted to move us into the student housing and took us and it was those cinder block, dorm block, tiny buildings and I'd grown up in this house in the suburbs with a yard and all those things and I cried. I think I was 13 and I cried. I was like, mom, we can't move here. <laughs> our house and we didn't I won I won that fight um, <laughs> and and we stayed in that house 
the magic around Christmas this time of year. I think about how the house would transform overnight. It would be glittery and perfectly clean and beautiful. Just as I slept, that transformation would occur, and it was amazing. When I was a little girl, I would have to stand on a stool to reach the kitchen. We had a really narrow galley kitchen, and my mom would let me wield a rolling pin recklessly and beat the walnuts in a Ziploc bag for the banana nut bread. I would pour it into the gooey batter and stir it up, and I remember the ecstasy of that on my tongue when it was warm and moist right out of the oven. So good. My mom and I sat on the stairs with a birthday cake with the candles glowing, and we looked up towards heaven and sang happy birthday to my brother Maddie, who wasn't there anymore, so we had to blow out the candles for him. And I remember she taught me to honor his birth in spite of his death. As a young adult, I took so much joy in creating my first home. My landlords were kind enough to let me paint my room. It was a very sunny room, and I painstakingly picked out the color. It was called Garden Fairy. And I thought that was so wonderful. <laughs> and I slathered it on the walls, on top of all these other layers of paint of other people who had turned this house into their home. And I remember thinking fondly of them. If a little chip of paint would come off, I'd see their color choice and feel connected with them, having that been their, their space before me. I remember the first time that I told him that I loved him. I was sitting in a restored rocking chair that I'd taken from that childhood home in North Carolina. Well, I was still in North Carolina, but different part of North Carolina to this adulthood home. And I had my knees pulled up to my chest kind of as armor in case he didn't say it back. In the garden fairy room. <laughs> I remember making love on the kitchen counter the second my parents' car pulled out of the driveway after I hosted my first family Christmas in my home. Yeah. Hanging out in my yard that I never mowed, watching my kitten prance around those long blades of grass and my arthritic dog kind of limp about while I sowed the seeds of my first garden there. Walking in the mountains gave me a lot of time to think. That amount of time alone on the trail in your head can take you to a lot of different places, but it often brought me back to those places and a lot of memories of childhood and growing up and how I had become who I was and where I was and how I had chosen to walk the literal and figurative path that I was on at that time. And a, d a spaciousness started to open up in me. There was something the wilderness granted me, an openness of my mind and my spirit it helped me dispel old ideas of what were. And I started to look at myself and the world with an eye that wasn't as focused on definitions. I looked out at the most beautiful scenery I had ever seen in my life, and I took a huge, deep breath inhaled the cleanest, crispest air I had ever filled my lungs with. And with that breath, I would fill myself up with feelings of confidence and ease and safety and well-being. I was totally exhausted, but I was home. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica, for telling that story. Our next storyteller is Tom Penn, who told his story about home at the Durango Arts Center. Here is Tom's story. So, so I'm going to try to do this about home. So. I grew up in Texas on a ranch in central Texas. Yeehaw is right. Durango is now my home. And I do love it here. I left a lot leaving in Texas. I left a bunch of kids and a ranch and all that stuff. I do go back, but I love Durango. And so God bless you all. I, I do love it here. So I grew up on a ranch in Texas. We raised cattle and Horses, uh, cutting horses, if anybody knows what that is. Um, 
field corn and milo and hygia and hay and all that stuff. And uh, it was run by my grandfather. His name was Richard. Everyone called him boss, not because he was the boss, which he was, but since he'd had that name since he was three. There was, a, there was a man who worked on the ranch. He was there long before I was born, and he drew his last breaths on the ranch as well. Jim Mosley. Jim Mosley was a true cowboy. He, uh, about 6'1", maybe 140 pounds. Seriously. The toughest man and the kindest man I think I ever knew. And he was a black cowboy. Not many of those. He had a way with horses. He could, tell, uh, he could tell if a horse needed its teeth floated or two inches more on the left hind shoe. He would uh, talk to horses. He would mumble to horses. He would whisper to horses. He wasn't a horse whisperer, not that sort of thing. But he had a way with horses. If we had a problem, we raised cutting horses. We used them on the ranch to move cattle around, to separate cows from calves, to, uh, to pull out two to doctor them, to run calves into the chute, all that stuff. And he was brilliant with that. You could watch him, he would, it, was, it was like he was in a rocking horse. You put him up on, that, on, his, uh, on his horse and he could make that horse do anything, gently. He had a big, uh, big Palomino, a large horse for a cutting horse, about 21 hands high, and that was Jim's horse. Mr. Jim, we called him, because uh, he deserved our respect. He would, he, would, uh, he would say that he had taught his horse, Dolly. He, would, he had taught Dolly how, to, how to, uh, to end the day and go back to the barn. He'd say, Dolly, time to go home. Let's go home, Dolly. Sure enough, she would head to the barn, nice walk. He would take the reins, he'd throw them over his pommel and reach into his pocket, and I swear this is true, and pull out a cigarette paper put it on his tongue, he'd take that little bag out of his pocket, tap some tobacco onto his tongue, and then do some kind of magic and pop a cigarette out of his mouth. I swear to God, this is true. So my grandfather had a younger brother named Jimmy, Uncle Jimmy. Jimmy had a dairy down the road. So Jimmy's day started real early. He'd get his uh, dairying done early in the morning, and. He had some stuff to do late in the afternoon, but in the middle of the day, he didn't have much to do, so he would usually come over to the ranch and tell us what we were doing wrong and how much better he could do it. He was a little Poppin' Jay, banty rooster of a guy and, uh, with a big mouth, and he was always after Jim. He was all, always after Jim. He said, you know, Jim, I don't believe this stuff. You, you can't talk to horses, and you can't tell Dolly to go to the barn. It's some kind of cowboy trick. You're doing it with your knees or something. Jim always said, no, Mr. Jimmy, I, that's, that's, she, she can hear me. I can talk to her. So one day, my grandfather, Papa, and, uh, and uh, Jim took a bunch of calves to the market. And, you know, this is funny. I can't see a damn person out here. This is just it's like I'm talking, to, I'm talking to blackness. Anyway, so they took a bunch of calves to market. They weren't going to be back until uh, late late after the sun went down, and sure enough, Uncle Jimmy shows up in the middle of the day and starts talking his stuff. And he said, you know, that, that Jim, he said, it's talking to horses stuff, I don't believe any of that. He said, I'm gonna go get that big Palomino dolly, I'm gonna show you what a cowboy can do. It's like, uh, Jimmy, that's Jim's horse, don't, don't mess with Dolly. But next thing we know, he's out of the corral, he's got a halter on her, got the saddle on her, and he's leading her to the gate. And it's like, oh my God, we can just see, see this coming. And you can see Dolly's just kind of doing, doing one of these things, you know how horses do. So, he gets, so Jimmy gets up on her, goes out in the pasture, and digs his heels into her. Well, a cutting horse, you don't, you don't touch your heels to a cutting horse. That's not what, the way they work. So she spins twice and takes off. This is about a 50-acre pasture takes off to the far end of the pasture. There's one tree in the whole pasture in that corner. And we just could see it coming. We knew exactly what was going to happen. Jimmy's up, he's a little guy. Jimmy's up there flapping his arm, looked like a monkey on a goat. You know, he's, you know, he's screaming, pulling on the stuff, and Dolly's just heading for that corner. Well, sure enough, she gets to the corner, knocks him smooth out of the saddle. Well, not exactly smooth out of the saddle because his left heel got caught in the left stirrup. 
and Dolly banged him and drug him around that pasture for, seemed like forever, it was probably only three or four minutes until she finally, finally got, uh, got tired and stopped. And we're working our way across the pasture trying to get to him and we can hear him say, home Dolly, let's go home Dolly. <laughs> and by God, Dolly starts walking nice and sweetly home. So we, we, we stopped him and we got Jimmy untangled from the horse. He was banged up a little bit. His ego was, uh, was hurt. Nobody ever said a word to Jim. Nobody ever said a word to Papa. <laughs> but Jimmy never, ever said those words again that, uh, that she doesn't know where home is or what that word means. <laughs> so that's my story about home. Thanks, Tom, for telling that story. Our next storyteller was Barbara Noseworthy, who told her story about home at the Durango Arts Center. Here's Barbara's story. Yeah! Come on. <laughs> so the last time, actually the only time, I was on this stage was at a slam, Raven Narratives, and I told the story of calling in sick on a Monday morning, going to a payphone to um, say that I couldn't come into work that day and not saying that I was getting married on top of Devil's Tower. <laughs> and I was, which is a big climbing area up in uh, northeastern Wyoming. And I described it as being married, getting married to the guy. So we'll come back to the guy eventually in this story. So, start by just asking yourself, what's your first memory? Just think about that for a moment. So my first memory is waking up in the back seat of a station wagon with my two brothers and my sister in a gas station and my father looking back saying, wake up kids, we're home. I had no clue where we were. We had been living in South Carolina during the very difficult times of the Civil Rights Movement. And when we were living in South Carolina, if you were black, at that time you would have been called Negro, you couldn't try on shoes. You had to trace your feet, cut them out, and put them into a shoe. You couldn't swim in a pool with white kids. That was the life that my parents were trying to raise us in, and they realized it wasn't going to work. So my father, a minister, managed to tell a story about how we needed to treat people a little better, and he got told to move north. Yankee, go home. And he was Canadian. But we ended up in Michigan. So my first memory is of six years of age, because my parents never really talked about life in South Carolina. So we're living in, in Michigan. We live in the, the uh, uh, a classroom in the church. The first Sunday that we were there, there were nine of us in the church, and six of them had the same last name. Mine, yeah. So my parents made the best of it. They um, made a life for us, and they bought their first home in a small town in Michigan um, in a, a suburb. And only later did I really come to realize how very little resources we had. Um, you know, it was a three-bedroom, one-bathroom home. There were six of us. Every morning we had the schedule, you got 10 minutes to be in the bathroom. And then you had to keep, keep it moving. But we never, never really thought that we didn't have res resources that other people might have because everyone in our neighborhood had the same kind of resources. And also, my parents were incredibly open and generous. My father constantly brought artists home to live with us, for, sometimes for a day, sometimes for a few months. And my mom had this capacity to make every meal expand. In fact, when I was growing up, I actually thought the neck of a chicken was something good to eat. <laughs> because it was what my mom always chose when we sat down to a meal when we had extra guests at our home. 
So I'm growing up in this, what I would call a wonderful environment. And I turn 16, and I'm able to date. Right, my first, I, I had to wait till 16. So the first guy who dared to ask me out came to the house and had to go through the drill. And the drill was you sat down at the very small kitchen table and my father pulled out a dictionary. It was red and it was about this big, I kid you not. And the guy had to open the page and my father would find a word on that page. And then the guy had to define it and use it in a sentence. I had four dates in high school. That was it. So I went to college, and my world expanded. And I knew I was getting out of that small town. And I met the guy. And I decided I was actually going to bring him home to my house. Never done that before. And he was going to actually stay the night, sleep on the couch, right? Um, so I actually came home the day before Thanksgiving. He was coming for Thanksgiving. And I removed every dictionary from our house. All of them. Gone. So, of course, my father had to do the interview. And the guy was an astrophysicist. So here's my dad, who studied Greek and Chinese and is a theologian. And he's trying to deal with an astrophysicist. And he says, Barbara, be careful. I do not believe they believe in God. <laughs> I said, I don't know, Dad. I really don't know. But you know, I think the guy is pretty special. So life goes on. You know, I get out of that small town. I never look back, although I, I truly have the greatest memories of my, my time with my parents there, but I just did not want to live in that small town much, any, much longer. And I end up in Casper, Wyoming. We have the call in sick, get married, you know, um, because I needed dental insurance, which some of you may have heard. And life takes us all over, everywhere I can imagine. We lived in Casper, Wyoming. We lived in Seattle. We lived in Bozeman, Montana. Sheridan, Wyoming. Walla Walla, Washington. Manhattan, Nairobi. Um, back to Manhattan, Rome and Durango. Amazing. And I found along the way that my definitions of home changed, constantly changed. But more re most recently, this happened, right? And I, it's a different story of what happened and how it happened and how I ended up in the emergency room and everything about that. But let me say that I broke my shoulder. I ended up, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. I went back to New York because I had paid for five theater tickets and I was going to go to those shows. So I did it with my arm in a sling and drugs. But I ended up coming back here for the surgery because I wanted great care. So about uh, not quite three weeks ago, I came home from the, from the surgery. And I am totally dependent on the guy. I mean, anything to get anything done. So we have this dog who doesn't pay any attention to me, who now sleeps by me every night. He's always around, 14 and a half year old dog. But it was a, the surgery was on a Wednesday, and on a Friday, friends were coming over to kind of sit with me so that the guy could go rock climbing. I needed to get cleaned up. And I'll never, I'll, I'll carry this to my grave. We're in the kitchen, and I need to get my hair washed. So the guy is there, says, I can take care of this. I'm on it. Our dog, Bono, who's 14 and a half, comes and lies down in the kitchen. He's looking up at me like, Mom, this is not something normal. Are you OK? And the guy is washing my hair. And I thought, this is as good as it gets. This is home.
Thank you, Barbara, for sharing your story with us. Our next storyteller is Dan Jenkins, who told his story about home at the Sunflower Theater in Cortez. So let's see, um, 24 Pleasant Hill, uh, 21117, that's, uh, that's in Baltimore. That's, that's my first house that I lived in, and um, one acre of land, three-story house, big basement. Uh, 1508 Cranwell, uh, 21093. Uh, that was uh, that was another house that my parents had moved to. Um, Ten Twenty Ninth Street, eight o two o three. That's a that's an infamous house that actually had an entire article written about it in Alpinist magazine because of the odd collection of uh, climbers from around the world that sort of descended upon this place and. Uh, just sort of spent time sleeping on the floor or the couch or somebody's bed when they weren't there or the lawn or wherever. Um, 515 East 3rd, number three. That was, uh, that was a house I lived in. It was actually a trailer up in, uh, in Leadville, for those of you who know that zip code. Um, and uh, currently... Uh, 318 South Ash, right here in uh, 81321. But some of that actually uh, is a little backstory on uh, sort of a, a recreational hobby and ultimately a, a, a career that I chose, which was climbing and mountaineering. And that sort of requires you to have in your mind the idea that there's a house, which is the physical structure, which have been met by, mentioned by several of the other storytellers. And then there's a home, which is where you sort of say, this is where my spirit is, or this is where some of my things are. Or, this is where, you know, maybe it's a couch for the night or the back of somebody's truck or the middle of the wilderness. And so in choosing uh, the life and um, ultimately the profession of being a mountain guide, you know, I found myself in a lot of places where I hadn't had to make home. And one of those stories was I left Baltimore on a road trip to go climbing in the Canadian Rockies. And so once we packed up everything and got in the vehicle, we drove um, from Baltimore and picked up another fellow climber up in Detroit. And then, you know, you're on a road trip when you're going to use your passport to continue your travel. So... We punched through the Canadian border and ended up in um, in British Columbia, and we were up in um, in the Canadian Rockies, and we were going to climb some peaks. And so, at that point, when we got to the trailhead to go climb Mount Assiniboine, you're leaving from your vehicle where all your possessions are, and so you have that like really nice sense of like, okay, I have everything I need right here. I can like live out of the car. And then it's like you got to pare it down and like shove it into, you know, 6,500, you know, cubic inches. Okay, great. That's going to, it's going to be home. It's going to be inside of that. And then you head up and we went up to the mountain and uh, set up our camp. You know, you're looking up and you're like, okay, this is home, but that's where we're going to go climb. We're going to climb that and then we're going to come back down. So we, we left, uh, you know, in pre-dawn. And there were six of us, and as we uh, we headed up the mountain and started, you know, increasingly, you know, encountering more difficulties, it became obvious at a certain point that we were trying to get up to there, but we were also trying to get back down to there. Sort of these, you know, dichotomy kind of competing things. Like if we go further towards that way, we're getting further away from our home, which is the nice sleeping bag and the tent and all the creature comforts. And so we continued up, and then at one point we just said, we're, we're not going to make it to the summit. Um, but we're also probably not going to make it back down to camp either. Matter of fact, we're not going to make it back down to camp because, you know, darkness was coming pretty quick. So we, um, 
you know, just sort of figured it out as we went along and we descended back down where we had come up. But, you know, climbing up is one thing, but when you're coming down, especially late in the afternoon and then once the darkness came, then we required us to really use the ropes, not just for a backup, but to actually descend on them. So it got to one point where we had to start setting up rappels and then going down the next section and then another rappel and then the next section. And so when we were on our second sets of rappels, we had the ropes set up in such a way where people could go down them and then I was gonna be the last one, so we pulled the ropes back up, and we had one rope that was 120 feet and one rope that was 150 feet. So everybody had gotten down to where our home was gonna be for the night on this ledge, and I was the last one to come down. And we weren't doing really very good math in our head because we were tired, so we had sent the 150-foot section out first, which was not a good idea. So when my friend had set up the anchor down there, I had pulled the ropes back up, rigged it all up, and I start rappelling down the two ropes together, and all of a sudden, I'm trying to like look around in the dark. I'm probably 45 minutes behind them working with all the ropes, and in my head, I'm like, oh, quick math. You're like 30 feet short of where that anchor is to get down to where they are another 120 feet away. So I had to figure out a way to be able to manage all of that. By the time I did that, got down on the rope, figured out where the anchor was, went back up the rope, went back up and retrieved everything, pulled it all back down, set it up on the second anchor and got back down to them. I was probably two hours before, you know, I had reached them where they had been sitting there. They were all asleep when I got there. They were all kind of hanging out on this ledge. And um, so we got down and uh, we were all sitting on a ledge. It was probably about maybe half as wide as this stage, all six of us. And they were clipped into one anchor, and I said, well, you know, I'm already clipped into the rope still, so I'm just going to stay clipped in. <laughs> so, um, so people didn't really get a very good night's sleep, but I was pretty tired at that point. So um, that was our home for the night. You know, six of us sitting on a ledge that was basically just, you know, 12 inches wide and just hanging out there. And I remember the one guy next to me just kept sitting there all night, and he was just trying to stay warm. So all he kept doing was you know, going like this all night long. <laughs> and uh, so um, anyway, we woke up in the morning and everybody starts putting their crampons back on because they thought, well, if they have these metal spikes on their feet, their feet are going to be freezing cold all night. And I didn't even think about that. I just had left my crampons on the whole time. So, but, um, so then when we got up in the morning, we started figuring out, okay, now we got to continue back down and go all the way back down to where all of our other stuff was. And so we rigged up everything and um, did another series of rappels and uh, one of the rappel anchors I was actually holding on to it because I knew that the rock was really like it was really fragile it was like a bunch of um, pieces of shale that you might have sitting on top of each other stacked like pancakes and it was just all kind of shearing off and at one point this big guy leaned back and put so much weight on it that it popped the one anchor and I was still holding on to the rope and then I told him to come back up we re-anchored set it up the last time and then on the last rappel I said I'm been the last guy the whole time can I go first so anchor was all set up I hadn't set it up but I was trusting and I went and I clipped into it and as soon as I started leaning back about eight or ten feet all of a sudden the whole thing blew out and I'm, I'm going that way off the mountain and down backwards and I regained my balance right at the last second. All the rope had spilled right to my feet. I mean, it was just me getting ready to get down the mountain. And uh, I said, let's set this up again, put a few more pieces of gear in and, you know, I'll double check everything, make sure it's done right. So then we set it all up, was all good, rappelled down. We all got back down safely and looked back up you know, at our home that we had had in the mountains for a couple of days and, uh, you know, knew that we had made home up on the ledge system where we all spent the night and uh, that was kind of a good place to be. So then we eventually headed out of the back country and back into our cars and ultimately back to my uh, my true house and my true home in Baltimore. So that's, uh, that's my story of home. Thank you.
Thanks, Dan, for telling that story. Our final storyteller for this episode is Nancy Stoffer, who told her story about home at the Durango Arts Center. Here's Nancy's story. This friend says, so what if everybody had to do it? And which got me thinking, right. which is the reason, I don't know, this might be a mistake. Um, <laughs> so I worked at um, KDUR for a long time. Yeah, and, or long enough. And uh, there weren't lights like this at KDUR, but anyway. Um, one of, the, one of the fundraisers that we did was called the Transvestite Ball. And it was a, it was a big party um, for Halloween um, that was started by Tammy Graham many years ago. And it was, a, it was, a, it was, it was really f- fun, um, wonderful time for people to be able to express themselves, which Durango knows how on Halloween to definitely express itself. Um, but this particular year, uh, for the poster, we had um, George Bush was president, and there was this image going around of him uh, g- crawling out of the water, golem-like. It was um, <laughs> this. This will have something to do with home eventually. I'm, I promise you that. Um, and I can't remember. I think. Oh. It was, it was something like transvestite, it's a disaster. And, uh, and it was like borderline appropriate, it really wasn't, and I felt like I'm probably gonna get in trouble, but, um, and I almost did, because this one woman called up, she was, she was really irate about it, and uh, she had also called, I think, the provost and the president, so I had to, like, I had to talk her down off the ledge, which I'm kind of good at, and so um, I was talking to her about how Halloween, uh, for me, Halloween has to do with people finding what scares you the most and um, embodying it. Because as human beasts that we are, the animals that we are, if we're, we're heading into the time, it's Halloween, you know, it's October, um, and we're heading into this moment where we're not sure if we're gonna make it all the way through to the other side. Um, have we stored up enough? Are, are, we, gonna, are we gonna make it? So, and, the, and the nights are getting longer, and so we're kind of scared about stuff. So if we can, so we create this thing called Halloween where we embody, whether it's a ghost or a ghoul, or if you're a male dressing up as a woman, because that's really frightening oftentimes, or has been um, to men in this society. Uh, and and by doing that, because once we are what frightens us most, like being on stage, then we, um, it, it defangs it for us. So I, so I told her this whole story, and, uh, and she, she, I didn't get in trouble, which was my whole point. Um, but then <laughs> I started kind of searching out and looking at different holidays, you know, like, like what for the, the, the beasts that we are, what do what purpose do they serve? So, you know, Thanksgiving, we we gather up all of the things that we've um, harvested and we share them with each other because really what's gonna keep us alive more than anything else is is um, loving each other and sharing with each other. And so and then it goes into uh, Christmas, um, and uh, and really, you know, cause short, short, short days. Um, it's a little dreary, so get as much green stuff as possible. Let's bring that tree, that's the only green thing out there right now, bring that tree in and we'll plant it here and, and we'll get like lots of lights, some light, lots of lights, bring lots of color. Let's sing something. Can we sing something that we all know? You know we do all that sort of stuff to, to try to kind of keep us going through. Anyway, eventually we get to Easter, and um, <laughs> and Easter, it's it's all about like the dead rising again, right? Because everything has been dead and miserable. Oh, I forgot about Valentine's Day. Actually, Valentine's is my favorite because 
first of all, it's February, right? And they make it short. It's like, <laughs> we'll get through it. I swear to you. You're feeling miserable. I get it. Too much snow, even though you love to ski. It's just too much. So here, you need some sugar. Here's some candy for you. Here's some flowers. I love you. I really do. So back to Easter, or on to Easter. Um, eggs, rabbits. It's, it's all about get busy, right? You know? kind of repopulate. Well, when I was a little kid, um, probably about nine or eight or something like that, uh, it was Easter, and I got a chick. Did anybody ever get a little baby chick for Easter? Uh, probably not. I did. I got this little baby chick, and it was so cute. But I didn't know anything about chicks, but I think that what they do I'm not positive, but this is what this one did, is that it's like, it, it would go, um, anything that would go by, it would be like, mom. And it would start <laughs> running after. So I had this dog named Alex, who was, he was not bright at all, but he was very loving and entertaining. And he got up, I remember he got up, and this is gonna be more fun for me, because then you, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> But he got up and he starts walking and the chick was like, saw him and starts walking after him and starts chasing him a little. Well, not really chasing, but to him it was. And, um, and he got so freaked out. And, um, and I just, it was one of my favorite memories was in the family room in this house that we had um, when we were a family um, of this little chick chasing this dog who was terrified. It was like tiny little chick. So eventually, because uh, I don't know if we knew what we were doing with the little baby chick, um, it was, uh, I can remember having it like on this towel. You always got a towel, right? On a towel, because um, the chick was dying and had this, um, sorry, <laughs> this this light, because we needed to keep it warm, because it wasn't well at all. And just watching, you know, so pretty, that color, really bright yellow, you know, just having this light here, and the chick just mm, trying to make it, but just watching the little tiny, and then gone. And I was so sad. I was so sad, and but you know what? I think that that okay, so we're back to home, okay? Maybe because I was at home when this was all happening. But I think I think really, um, you know, the beauty of that was one of the most beautiful, maybe the only death that I had seen at that time. I know it was the only death I'd, I'd well, except for. Um, this dog that we had. But anyway, <laughs> it was such a beautiful... Am I out of time? Okay, okay great. <laughs> it was such a beautiful death, and, and I think that it, it instilled in me that like death is, is where... I mean, life is where home is, but death is where home is. Like, death can be beautiful, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks to all the brave storytellers who told their stories at our SLAM events. To pitch your story for a future Raven Narratives event, fill out the contact form on our website at ravennarratives.org. A current list of our live storytelling events coming up in 2020 can be found on our website at the events page. Tickets are on sale now for our next live storytelling events coming up on March 6th and 7th, when the theme will be firsts and lasts. 
Get yours now at ravennarrativestickets.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the Raven Narratives podcast that you're listening to right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And share these stories with your friends. If a particular story made you laugh, cry, or made you think a little bit differently about your world, please leave a comment and let us know. Big thanks to our fiscal nonprofit sponsor, Mancus Valley Resources. Find out more about all the wonderful projects they support in the Mancus Valley of Colorado at mancusvalleyresources.com. The website for buying Raven Narratives tickets, ravennarrativestickets.org, was created by Cortez Web Services. Find out how they can help your business online at cortezweb.com. And finally, our theme music was written and composed by Mo Cooley and performed by Mo and the Motones. Find out more about their music on the Motones Facebook page. That's M-O-E Tones on Facebook. Now for an outtake. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never be a jerk again. Really Have you learned your that. lesson, Sarah? <laughs> also, like, I come from a Puritan family. That, See? Like, You're going to be harder on yourself than I ever could be. I know, right? So I'm just, I'm fine. I don't need what to is, say anything. What does your Amish, Amish, Amish lineage do to you? Um, like, makes me want to eat cheese, mostly. <laughs> and uh, beards. <laughs> and uh, your beard not is wear a famous. belt. <laughs>